Let's go ahead and just pray tonight and open up this time in the word of the Lord. Make sure that now the music and everything's turned off and let's just get focused in on the Lord. Tonight's been really powerful. I have felt the nearness of the Lord up here and the presence of God's been awesome. So Lord, as we come in Jesus' name and through his blood, I just thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for an open heaven and your glory here. We thank you, Holy Spirit, as you've come to move in power. And Lord, I thank you for everybody that's going to be listening or watching this, that even now by your Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us, that help us to be good soil for the word of the Lord, that our eyes are anointed, our ears are anointed. We have good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, good soil, that the word of the Lord as you speak through me is living seeds of truth sown into that good soil of people's lives. Watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. And I thank you for the winds of your spirit blowing this out among the nations, that it's going to get everywhere it's supposed to, all over. And Lord, we know the birds of the air try to steal the seed, so if the enemy's trying to hinder this, in Jesus' name as a church, we bind him right now. You will back off and release what God has for us. We break your power. And Lord, I thank you for your mighty angels is clearing away any resistance, but we stand on the promise the word of the Lord will never return void. It will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So we thank you for this getting where it's supposed to, accomplishing what it's supposed to under a mighty anointing, even the presence of God invading where people are. We thank you for it now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, so last week I talked about a deep consecration unto God. And for those that remember, we talked about being a living sacrifice, okay? And we went through a lot of the parallels between uh, what we call the Old Testament and into a New Testament fulfilled of that. But tonight, I want to also continue to talk about a deep consecration, but I'm going to talk about defilement. And you see this picture on here I have of a lady that has like wedding, wedding garments, but they're defiled. How many knows that Jesus is not coming for a bride that is defiled and polluted. He's not. He's coming for a bride without spot or blemish, wise virgins with extra oil, okay? And those that have made themselves ready. And so this right here is I talk about defilement. I'm not just talking about sin, but I'm going to explain the difference of what I mean by being by living in sin, but also by just simply being defiled. And I think this will be eye-opening to you, so give me your best ear. But let's pick up where we left off last week. Number one, Ephesians 5, 8, 9, which we talked about. For once you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Live as children of light. And then it goes on in verse 10 and says, and find out what pleases the Lord. It's our responsibility to study the word and to have a prayer life and go to a really good church that actually preaches the word. And it's our responsibility to find out what pleases the Lord and how to live for him. And then verse 11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So it's our responsibility to expose the devil's kingdom and his strategies and the things that he's wanting to do. And tonight, by God's grace, I'm going to talk a little bit about how Satan tries to defile God's bride. And so... Jesus, I don't want to go too far into this, but when Jesus on the cross, he, 
had his, his rib cage pierced, and just like Adam had Eve taken out of his rib, Jesus' rib cage was pierced, blood and water came out, and he was purchasing a bride. And how many knows that we are considered the bride of Christ? This is the mystery to Paul. He said, as you look at the old covenant, you don't see this reference. He said it was a mystery for those of us at the end of the age would be revealed that there is the Messiah has a bride, and that bride is without, supposed to be without spot or blemish, made up of both Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ, and God wants us to be ready because Jesus is going to catch us away as a thief in the night. But nonetheless, there's a bride. So here's something I would submit to you. It seems to me that there is a difference between the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. And let me explain what I mean. The body of Christ kind of has like a very earthly sound to it. Like, for example, Adam was taken out of the dirt and was fashioned and God breathed into him like a resuscitation type thing, pushed down into him, made him a living being. And it seems like the body of Christ is a reference, very broad statement about the greater Christendom and everybody that would call themselves a Christian all over the world. Okay, does that make sense? Very kind of earthly minded, but all over the world, everybody that calls themselves a Christian. But the bride of Christ seems to be almost a heavenly reference like for example God told Abraham it would be like the sand on the seashore his descendants that's earthly but then it would also be like the stars in the sky heavenly and I think the bride is a reference to like a remnant of people that truly are born of God that really know the Lord walk with him live for him sold out to him that is a reference of the bride okay so there's kind of a little bit of a difference because how many knows there's a lot of people out there that call themselves Christians? Does that make sense? And they may not even necessarily be born again, but just kind of Christian by name. But there's a difference between the all over the world, everybody that says I'm a Christian versus like a remnant bride. So I want to be a part of that remnant bride. Amen. I know you do too. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 Starting with verse 14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? God hates mixture. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial means lawlessness. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? How many of you feel that way? Because I, I personally just do not feel a connection with the lost people hanging out with them or anything anymore at all my my people are god's people amen and we just don't have a lot in common with the unbeliever but god has called us to witness to them but as far as hanging out with them we just don't have a lot in common anymore verse 16 and what agreement is there between the temple of god and idols for we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 17, therefore, I love this scripture, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Come out from among them. Be separate. Holy means set apart. So God is saying, come out from among them and be holy unto me, set apart unto me. Touch no unclean thing, that's an interesting scripture, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. 
So tonight I want to open up by talking about the feast called Yom Teruah, which is the Feast of Trumpets. And trumpets mean is the reference to the shofar, okay? So a couple things I want to talk about to kind of explain this, and then I'm just going to move off of it. I've got three things I want to mention. The first one is this. There's a reference about the last trump. And a lot of people don't understand that reference. But when Paul wrote that to the church in Thessalonica, it was a church he planted on his missionary journeys, okay, in Thessalonians. He wrote to them, and he talked about this last trump. And, he, and then he wrote to the Corinthians about what, like the, the sound of the shout the, and the sound of the archangel and what the shofar blast. And then they would be the dead in Christ. There's this resurrection. But it's interesting, there's this reference to the last trump. Now, a lot of people don't understand that. And some have said, well, doesn't it refer to something in the book of Revelation? Absolutely not. The book of Revelation was written several years, decades actually later, than, the, than what was written to the church in Thessalonica. So the reference is just simply not the same. Just like there's a lot of different references to a shofar blast throughout the entire Bible, and they're not all one thing. They're different times. God came down on Sinai, etc. So there is a shofar blast that's going to be a last trump, which I'm going to explain, that has to do with the catching away of a remnant bride. But then we read about, there's this interesting reference to seven seals, and then there's seven specific shofar blasts that have to do with end-time judgments. It's not about a catching away of the bride at all. This is about God's judgments in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Then there's the seven bowls that have to do with the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So this isn't the same thing. So what is the, the trump, just to, the last trump, just to make it real simple? Well, whenever we gather at this time like tonight, I did various shofar blasts tonight, but I remember being with a Messianic congregation at the Feast of Trumpets. And they have somebody up there that'll kind of sing different things, and, and they go through a series of shofar blasts, and they're supposed to be around 100 shofar blast. And so as we gather at this time, this is, this is Christian believers, and it's a messianic setting. And the person up there, there's different blast. So the tekiah is the dun-dun, this good long blast, okay? Then the shavarim is we dun-dun, 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 it's three. And then the teruah is the one that's staccato, da-da-da-da-da-da, like that. And it's supposed to represent somebody weeping or crying. And then at the end, so this is how it played out. Somebody would sing out a shivering, and then they, they had different shofar players throughout the congregation, and they would blast out one of them, dun-dun, 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 then the next one, then the next one. And they went through these various blasts for a little while, and at the very end, the last trump, everybody say the last trump. The person up there called the cantor would sing out Takia which means the, the final great last trump. And all of them at the same time would blast the shofar and as loud and hold it out as long as they could. So this reference to me, and understand I do not have time to really explain this and grab a whole bunch of scriptures, but the early church, there was no problem with Christianity being very messianic 
a very Hebrew flavor. And they totally understood Jesus came to fulfill everything. And so these Gentile churches, the Apostle Paul was bringing into them, where, for example, they would keep a Passover Seder, but they understood Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. So it was very messianic like we do here. And so every, there was all these different things that would be very Hebrew in flavor. I personally believe that Paul would have taught them about the Feast of Trumpets and that it's speaking of Christ's coming. And I have no doubt in my mind that even among the Gentile churches, they probably, just like we do today, had people that purchased and would play the shofar. As I think all the church would have understood this reference, especially those that were Jewish would have understood the reference. When you said the last trump, understand. Just like, for example, if I was to say to you every year, we celebrate Thanksgiving. Or if I was to say to you, turkey and dressing, what comes to your mind? Thanksgiving. If I was to say to you, fireworks, what comes to your mind? The 4th of July. If you grew up in Jerusalem back in the time of Jesus, and somebody was to say certain things, just like turkey and dressing brings up Thanksgiving, things come to their mind. If somebody was to say uh, something like the last trump, the thing that would come to their mind is being in a service where they play the shofar at the Feast of Trumpets and the last trump is blasted at the end. That's what would come to their mind. You understand? So this was a reference of this particular feast day. And so the interesting thing about this is that when you look at, number one, when Jesus came the first time, we know this, but I have to say it for the recording. He died on Passover day, not the day before, the day after. He died on Passover. Okay, he was nailed to the cross at 9 in the morning. The, it turned dark at 12. He died at 3, 6 hours on Passover. He was buried. He was in the tomb for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he rose from the dead the day after the Sabbath. So that is the first fruits. And so he raised from the dead on the feast of first fruits, not the day before it, not the day after first fruits, on that day. So Jesus fulfilled those three feasts at his death, burial, and resurrection. But listen to what I'm saying. He fulfilled them on that day. Then 40 days after that, he, well, 30 days later, he had been appearing to people. And he told them, he said, go wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So they went in, and, and 10 more days, they were praying in the upper room. And on listen, on the day called Shavuot, Pentecost, on that day, that feast day, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Not the day before, not on the 49th day of counting the Omer, not on the 51st day, but on that day. And so this is significant. Why did God choose to do it this way? It, it, it says it specifically in the Bible that he did. This isn't like interpretation or going back in history. This is, says in the Bible that Jesus died on Passover and he raised from the dead on first fruits and that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, okay? So this isn't up for debate. So why did God choose to do it on those feast days? In the same way, I believe, that the fall feast speak of his second coming. And there's no doubt in my mind that there's some kind of a connection with the, what we call the rapture, which in the Greek is harpazo, and it means a sudden catching away, I believe is connected somehow to the feast of trumpets. 
And then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, has to do with the nation of Israel going through the tribulation time because the days of Jacob's trouble have to do with the nation of Israel. It does not have to do with the church, even though there will be Christians that are left behind that are not ready when he comes. That, the Bible's clear about that. So what, what's going to happen is, is I believe there's a connection with uh, the rapture and then a connection with Israel with the Day of Atonement and then at the end, when Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives and his feet land on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, and he comes in to reign from David's throne for a thousand years, that prophetically speaks of the Feast of Tabernacles, where the Lord tabernacles among us. And just an interesting side note, when the Bible says that the word became flesh and dwelled among us, it tra translates from the Greek and tabernacled among us. Look it up. And so I personally believe from studying all of this that Jesus was probably conceived in Mary's womb, conceived at Hanukkah. And I personally suspect he was born at the Feast of Tabernacles. I have several reasons I believe that. One of them is that it was so crowded in Jerusalem that they couldn't find a room and had to stay in a manger, which might have been a sukkah. We're not sure by the time all the different translations and things. But anyway, they had to stay outside in some kind of uh, manger setting because so many people crowd into Jerusalem at Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So it's, it's possible that Jesus was actually born on the Feast of Tabernacles. Is that really hard to believe? I mean, for Jesus to come, if he died and buried and resurrected on significant days, it's not hard to believe he was born on a significant day and that he's not going to return on a, a significant day. So these seem to be prophetic. Now, here's some other interesting things about Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. The ancient Hebrew wedding and the betrothal cup, which I've said this many times, but for the sake of the recording, you know, a young man at that time would go out to the well because the young virgins that were never been married would go out there and part of their chores was to draw water from the well. And they would bring that back to the family and they would also water the animals, etc. And so if he was interested in being married, he'd go out there and look at the well. And if he found a young lady that he was interested in, he would go to her father. And there had to be some type of bartering because he had to present a dowry. And so her father would say, you know, look, I fed and clothed her and took care of her all these years. And so he would, they would barter and he would give him so many camels, sheep, whatever. And it was a dowry. Okay. And once they came to an agreement, then she would be brought in and she had a choice. She could say absolutely not emphatically, I will not marry this man. Okay. She had a choice. But whenever she was brought in, her dad and this guy had already come to an agreement and her dad would say, now look, he's agreed. He's paid a dowry, offered a dowry. Are you okay with it? And they would pour a fruit of the vine, okay, into a cup and set it on the table. If she agreed to marry him she would drink of that cup and set it down and that's interesting because personally I suspect that there's something symbolic about the communion table with this betrothal cup but and you'll see as I go because we drink of the fruit of the vine and we're doing this in remembrance of him till he comes okay and we've agreed to be his bride and we're supposed the communion table forces us in a good way but to examine ourselves are we living holy how many knows what i'm talking about are we a bride without spot or blemish are we ready 
And so I do believe that that betrothal cup is, is symbolic of, of what we know as communion. Now, the interesting thing about this is once she agreed and everything was set in stone, she was now engaged to him. The word in the Bible would have been betrothed to him. And she was to be living as though they were married, even though they weren't going to consummate their marriage till later. But she was um, totally spoken for, okay? And so they didn't wear like engagement rings back then. What they would do is she would continue on with her life, going out drawing water and chores and things. But now when she went out in public, she would wear a veil. And so if a young man came out to the well and another guy was looking for a wife, he would see the ones with veils on and know, oh, well, they're already spoken for, you see. That was basically their engagement ring. And her responsibility was to stay pure for him and to be looking for his coming. It's a very interesting culture when it comes to this back then. So at night, she would go home after her chores and everything, and they would eat dinner. And when she would go to bed, she would have to be looking what if he comes in the middle of the night, the second or third watch? What if it's midnight? What if it's two or three in the morning? And so she always had to live with this anticipation that he was coming as a thief in the night, and she did not know the day nor the hour, but so she had to stay ready for that. She was keeping herself pure. She was wearing her veil out in public, but also what she would do is she would keep an extra bottle of olive oil next to her bed because if her lamp went out, she could trim it real quick and pour extra oil. She had extra oil to be ready to be able, if he was coming. And what would happen was the young man that was her bridegroom, after she drank of the cup, he would go back to his dad's house. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you will be also. Now, his responsibility was to prepare a bridal chamber and get everything ready for the wedding feast, the chopa, everything had to be ready for her. <clears throat> and so while he's building onto his father's house, a bridal chamber and everything that's needed, he's working diligently. This could to even take up to two years, but his father was watching. And when his father, not him, but when the bridegroom's dad saw that everything was ready, he would tell his son, go get your bride. But up until that point, nobody knew the day nor the hour but the father. And so if you were to say that phrase to people that lived back in that time, this is one of the things that would come to their mind is an ancient custom in the wedding ceremony and in the uh, you know, the whole wedding situation that they had from beginning to end, they knew that the bridegroom would not know the day nor the hour except his dad. So it was a saying among them. And so when that bridegroom's father saw that everything was ready, he would say, go get your bride. Now, here's the interesting thing that they would do at this time. They would go as a thief in the night. And so he would get his friends, the friends of the bridegroom, and there would be a shofar blaster among them, okay? And they would start going from his house to that young lady's house in the night. They were singing. 
There was rejoicing. They were getting ready to go for the bridegroom to get his bride. The shofar was blasting. And as they were going through the streets, I mean, people would get woke up in the night, but they would recognize the sound and know what's going on. And they would be smiling and say, well, somebody's about to get married. And whenever he got to his uh, future bride's house, he would snatch her away as a thief in the night. She had to be ready. She had to have extra oil. And she would trim the wick. She would make sure her lamp is lit. She's ready. And she's going to go with him. And he catches her away as a thief in the night and takes her back to his house. Where I am, you will be also. To the place he's prepared for her. To the wedding feast that he's prepared for her. And they would come together under a hope and they'd be married. And of course, they would end up consummating their marriage. But I mean, it was a feast and the feast would last seven days, which I have no doubt speaks of the seven years that we're going to be with the Lord while the earth is going through tribulation time. The remnant bride will be at a marriage supper of the Lamb, celebrating with him. And so at the end of that time, we're going to come back with him on horses the bible says and he's going to bring us back with him to the earth and then we will reign with him for a thousand years so the ancient hebrew wedding is very prophetic about this and i'm, I'm going to show you the connection here but notice that it's a thief in the night the bride the bride had to be looking anticipating his coming keeping herself pure having to have extra oil and when you know all of this and you go back and read some of the lord's parables it's amazing how much more sense they make in light of the day that jesus lived to the people he was speaking to so now let me take you to another interesting truth about yom Teruah, and then i'll kind of bring it all together so people, the average people did not keep up with the feast times, really. They were out there. They were farmers and ranchers, etc., just working. It was really the job of the, of the priests, the Kohanim, the sons of Aaron, to keep up with the times and seasons. And so whenever you got past the spring feast, you went through the long summer. Now you're moving into the fall feast time. It's time for the seventh month. And you see that the moon is starting to grow dark. And so what Aaron's descendants, the priesthood, would do, they had people that were basically watchmen. And they were told to go up on a hill. And this would be very problematic if things were overcast, you know. But they were told to go up on a hill where they could get a good, clear view. And they were watchmen. They were there assigned by what we know as the Sanhedrin, the leaders and all that, they were assigned there as watchmen to be, listen to what I'm saying. They know that the time is drawing near and they're looking up. Does that sound familiar? And as they're watching the sky night after night, they notice, you know, the moon goes completely black, completely dark. And then as it, that sliver starts to appear, that is called the new moon. And when that began, that was the first day of Tishri, and it also began the Feast of Trumpets. And however they were instructed to signal, I'm sure, I'm sure, excuse me, it was close enough for them just to maybe run down and announce it, but maybe they were blasting the shofar there on the hill. 
I've read in some places that for distant people, they would build fires so that in distant places where they couldn't hear it, they could see the smoke. I don't know, but I do know for sure that they had watchmen and the watchmen would see it and they would announce its time and then the sons of Aaron would begin to blast the shofar and people began to hear that and they knew it was the beginning of the feast of trumpets. But see, the interesting thing about that is nobody knew the day nor the hour except those that were watching and they were listening. Does that make sense? You had to be watching and listening. And it was the watchmen. Now, what does the Bible speak of symbolically? Who are the watchmen? The prayer warriors. Well, see, it's the, I'm telling you guys, the Bible says in these latter days, I mean, we need to really be praying. Jesus taught in that when he came the first time, he told his disciples, <clears throat> your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Pray, make sure you're praying, make sure you're a watchman. So for us, I'm telling you, we're living in the last days. We better have a strong prayer life. But those that are watchmen, we're looking up. And we have a sense of some discernment and some vision about us that we can sense that, that we're in the latter days. We know we are. And we know the scriptures, but we also can sense in our prayer life by the Holy Spirit that the coming of the Lord is near. And Jesus said, when, when you see all these things, Look up because your redemption's drawing near. We need to be watching and looking. And so as I was studying this out, I found it really interesting that if somebody says, no man knows the day nor the hour, the two things that would come to a Jew's mind in those days that lived then would be the, the wedding and would be the feast of trumpets because nobody knew the day nor the hour. And the interesting thing about that is this. Whenever you had the first day of, of Nisan and it counted 14 days, you knew when Passover was going to fall. There was no question. And then subsequent unleavened bread, first fruits. And then you could count the Omer. So you knew when um, Pentecost was going to come or Shavuot in Hebrew. You knew the day because you just had to count it out. You knew the day of Yom Kippur. Once Feast of Trumpets happens, you just count 10 days. You know the day. You know the day that tabernacle starts on the 14th of Tishri. You know the day, right? But yet, this is the only feast that you have to be watching because you actually don't know the day nor the hour until it comes. You're watching for that sliver to it. Does that make sense? So it's, it's an interesting feast in many ways. And not only that, but they called that crescent moon back then. In ancient times, they used to call it the sickle moon. Isn't it interesting that the end of the age is the harvest? We're living in the time of the sickle, that God is going to lay a sickle to the earth and bring in the harvest. And so I, as I studied this for years, I looked into this, and I, I have found this to be really interesting for me. I really believe that there's a last trump that speaks of this feast. I also believe that the ancient Jewish weddings speak of this feast. And I also believe that when you say the phrase, no man knows the day nor the hour, it speaks of this feast. So my point is this. From studying this out, I've concluded that I believe the Lord's rapture or harpazo, whatever, some people don't like that word, 
the catching away is going to happen in connection somehow with this feast. Now, here's the other interesting thing. People say, we don't know the exact day nor the hour. That's true. Let me give you something to think about. First off, do you remember when Jesus was upset with them because he said, you know what? You can look in the sky and it's turning red and you can tell the seasons. You know the weather patterns. You can see a fig tree when it's beginning to shoot, give out shoots. You know summer's near. You can look at the signs of things around you and determine things, yet you didn't even know at my appearing. Jesus was upset with them because they didn't know the timing of his coming. And to be honest with you, they should have because let me tell you something maybe you didn't know. Daniel predicted it to the day. And those that studied the scriptures like the apostle Paul and everybody else that was a rabbi, etc., and I mean studied it, they were looking for the Lord's coming around that time. They should have known. Does this make sense? They should have known. And now we have all these signs going on around us. I mean, everything the Bible predicted, it's almost eerie. Everything is unfolding. It's happening. It's so clear. And it's not just one thing. It's not just 10 things. It's every single thing the Bible said would mark the end times and the soon coming of the Lord. All of it is happening. Yet there's people that don't know the Lord's about to come. So are we supposed to be just oblivious to it, that we have absolutely no clue? No, that's not what the Bible's saying. What it's saying is, is you're not going to know the exact 24-hour period. You're not going to know the exact minute that at 1259 on September such and such at this time. No, you're not going to know that. And you know what the interesting thing about Yom Teruah? It's celebrated over a two-day period. The reason for that goes back to ancient times. Again, so that people that were there knew it started, were celebrating it, but then it went out, news of it went out, and then others would begin to celebrate as they heard. So they, they had it over a two-day period. This, to me, also speaks of this. You're not, you're not going to know, even if the Lord said, I'm coming on Yom Teruah, you're still not going to know the day, because it's two days, nor the hour. So it is possible, it's possible, I'm not saying for sure, but it is possible that his coming, for as far as the rapture goes, could be in connection with this feast. Okay, then at some point in time, without getting into end time prophecy, you guys know this, there's going to be a signing of a peace treaty with Israel, with the Antichrist, and the days of Jacob's trouble will come, seven year period, okay? But God is not intending for his remnant bride to be here during that time. I could go off on an hour explaining all that. And I just, I'm sticking to these notes, okay? But God does not intend for that. I'll just make one reference. The Bible, for the first three chapters, especially two and three in Revelation, all you read about is the church. To the church at Sardis, write this. To the church in Philadelphia, write this. To the church in Ephesus, write All you read about is the church. And then all of a sudden, John says, come up here. There's some kind of a sudden snatching away. And then you don't read anything about the church. Everything from that point is conspicuously about the nation of Israel. Did everybody catch that? So God's not intending for his remnant bride to be here during the tribulation time. Will there be Christians? Absolutely, because they were playing games and they weren't ready. But I want to be among those that is ready. Amen? All right, so let me just shift gears tonight.
and I'm just going to share a couple things, and then, then we're going to pray. There's a difference between sin and defilement, and let me explain what I mean, because you could not be living in sin, but still be defiled by something. I'm going to explain that. You know, there was an interesting, uh, years ago, back a long, long time ago, doctors and those that practice medicine didn't know a lot about the transference of diseases, etc. And so, for example, they found that, you know, doctors would deliver babies and would go from one child and, and they didn't know to really wash up and sanitize. And so then they would go to the next person and then the next person and without intentionally doing it, they were defiling the next person with sickness and stuff. They were spreading things. And so over time, they began to learn that they really needed to wash up. And so in the same way, people could innocently be living a righteous life before God, yet without intentionally doing so, they themselves could be defiled by something and also a home can be defiled. So just like, for example, you guys ever seen these, whether it be a TV show or some type of investigative thing, they can go in where there used to be blood on a wall and it was scrubbed clean, but yet when they put like a black light on it and they spray it with something, it glows. They know how to find things that you can't see with the naked eye. And I thought about this as well in Chernobyl where there was that nuclear uh, reactor meltdown. It's kind of weird to see pictures there and, because it's, it's still, it was pretty and it was clean. It was really nice. And all of a sudden when that happened, everybody just had to flee the area. As you go there, and it, it's weird because things are nice there. It's not really run down or anything, but yet nobody's there. And you could go there right now, and I'm not sure. Maybe today it's not as dangerous. I really don't know. I haven't looked into it in years. But you could go there, and everything would look fine to you with your naked eye. There would be nothing that you would smell with your nose that would be like, well, what's, there would be nothing in the natural that would alert you of any danger yet the radiation that still lingered there would kill you. But yet you would have no indication of it in the natural. Is this making sense? So there are things that you cannot see with your natural eye. You cannot hear with your natural ear. You cannot smell with your natural nose. Yet it's very real and it's very much there. So you can go into some places, houses, buildings, or whatever. You can't see it. But in the spirit realm, that place may be very defiled and polluted. But it's only something that can be discerned spiritually. So as you think about it, a person can be defiled and it not even be their fault. They can accept the Lord, they're living for the Lord, yet there's things that are defiling them and they don't realize it. So I'm going to talk about that because I talked last week about being deeply consecrated and now I kind of want to give some things to warn people that the coming of the Lord is near. We know that, we discern that and he's coming for what? A bride without spot or blemish. He's not coming for a dirty, defiled, wretched bride or a bride that's playing the harlot. He's coming for people that are pure. So what can defile? What can defile a person or defile a home? Well, there's a lot of things. We'll talk about it. But number one, I would say this. In the day and age that we're living, 
If you were to go back like in the 1950s and before that, it was one way. But the day and age we're living today, you need to be careful with various forms of entertainment because no matter what it is, if you're not careful, there can be a sense of defilement. And it's gotten really weird. I mean, who would have thought we'd be seeing at any time people, there may be pop stars or whatever, and then they're putting on shows that seem to look like they're intending it to look like some kind of a witchcraft ritual or something. And they're dancing around half naked. Listen, there's something about that that's defiling. And people don't realize it's even going on. I wonder sometimes if people even sense it at all that they go to places and they're participating at different times, whether it be concerts or, or certain types of entertainment they're going to, and they don't realize it. But there's something that is kind of cast out over people that is like a spiritual slime. Or, you know, you can pick up a cute little baby and, think all, and they can still puke all over you. You know what I'm saying? And you're going to have to go get a shower. In the same way, people can just go to something and they don't realize what they're going to or what they're around, but yet in the spirit realm, something is thrown on them like some kind of a spiritual defilement, like a slime, and they leave out of there and they've been defiled by what they're around and participating. Now, I'll tell you, be careful because some of this, if you're not careful, can try to spew out into your home and there can be a defilement there. So whether it's music-related or, or, you know, movie-related or something else, you need to be careful about what you're involved in because there can be a defilement. Number two, the places that you go. I know, River of Life, you feel this way, but things like bars and clubs and evil concerts and wicked places and all that, that's just not where I go anymore. That's not where I hang out. The only reason I would ever go to something like that is with a few other Christians, and that's to witness. But that's not places I go to hang out anymore. There's a sense of defilement about these places. And I'll tell you some other things that can bring defilement into your life. Things that's brought into your home, if you're not careful. You know, people go and they buy things. They, they don't mean to, but maybe they go to other countries. They buy souvenirs that's connected to various demon gods that are worshipped in other countries. Or, or maybe they go and they just purchase different things. And without any intention, without thinking about it or realizing it, they're bringing things maybe into their home that brings with it a sense of defilement. And they don't realize that. They don't understand that. And I'll give you some examples about that. You know, I think that River of Life knows this. So just be careful. I mean, people go to maybe some weird stores. I've gone into some places too. Like, for example, recently I had somebody look at uh, a guitar. And I went next door and I was looking at just a basic, um, I'm not somebody that does a lot of shopping. What do you call them, Sandy? Boutique. Okay, that's it. Well, it's basically like boutique thing. And I was, wait, I was killing time for the guy to finish with the guitar. And not only that, but I was thinking, well, I can maybe get my wife something. So I'm trying to call her on the phone. Of course, she doesn't answer, so that's one thing. But anyway, I'm there looking around. But I was thinking to myself, first off, it felt kind of uncomfortable and oppressed. And I was like, why does it feel like that? And I'm looking around. I was shocked at how much weird occult paraphernalia and strange stuff they put in there. There was a time in our Judeo-Christian heritage in America that they just wouldn't have, it just would not have been there. But now, 
you know, they, it's fashionable, I guess, that they've got Ouija boards and they've got tarot cards and they've got weird incense and they, they got all this bizarre stuff. And I guess they think it's cool or edgy or fashionable, whatever, but yet it brings with it a sense of defilement and an oppression, you see. And people bring that stuff in their homes. You need to be careful because if it's things that, that are witchcraft-related, you know, things, the jewelry that has like goat's heads and pentagrams and, and, and things that... I remember when we were in California one time, I don't remember what city we were in, but we were there, I think visiting family, and we went to a mall, and there was like this occult bookstore there. I mean, the whole thing was just an occult store. And I mean, they had all these, um, you know, just like we have anointing oils that the Bible tells us, you know, if any sick among you, anoint him with oil and pray for the sick. This is holy unto God. There's an anointing in this, yet they have their oils and their salts and their incenses and all these bizarre things there, everything you could imagine. And see, people that don't know any better may just go through there and go through, you know, maybe sniffing oils or something and go, hey, this smells nice. I'm going to take this home. And they don't realize what they're bringing into their home. Think about some of the stuff that, that uh, the various types of, uh, like serious stuff here, like the dragons that you see in some of those places or the chalices. or You got to be careful what you're purchasing in those type of places because the chalices and the uh, thames, the knives and stuff they have are made for ritualistic use in witchcraft. It's not like going to some like uh, Toys R Us and buying some little thing for a kid. It's not the same thing, you understand? So you just need to be careful about what you're purchasing because it can be really dark. And people bring that stuff into their life. They bring it in their home. Many stories. There was one group years ago, Christians, that they got a lot of phone calls about people that had all this paranormal activity and were asking for help. And, and the lady's very first question is, do you have a Ouija board? Because almost every time we find a Ouija board, <laughs> it's a form of divination. And people don't realize this, but let me just kind of rip the veil back and explain what's actually going on. Number one, a lot of times it's not going to work, but if it does, here's why it works. You ready? The people are getting around, and they're, they don't realize it, but it's a, it's a divination device. What is divination? To seek information. So the Bible talks about a spirit of divination, or another word is a python spirit. And they're asking this thing to talk to them. If it does work and the thing starts moving, it's a spirit of divination moving it. They've just asked that thing into their home. And they're communing with it. And then all of a sudden, all these other things start happening. Nightmares, night terrors, paranormal activity. People start getting sick. Husband and wife can't get along for nothing. Weird things. Kids are seeing scary things in the hallway. You see what I'm saying? They invited it in. So just be careful with the, the things like that that's going on because you can bring stuff into your home. Also, I think about this. But I don't have time to really get too deep into this, but just really filthy language brings a sense of defilement. Just like, for example, we come in here as Christians we just kind of know by the Spirit of God in us that we're not just saying all these curses and profanity and foul language and sexual innuendos. We just kind of sense it's not, there's something not, there's something defiling about it. 
You can take a, a sweet young lady that's a Christian, and she goes to work, and she may work at a place, and there may be a guy there that's kind of a pervert. And he gets around her, and he has all these filthy jokes and things he says and stuff, and his filthy mouth can kind of defile her. She leaves work feeling like she needs a bath. You understand? So filthy language can defile. Be careful with that because some really filthy language can come through entertainment. And that, that can bring the same sense of defilement into a home, you see. Also, things that you touch. You remember we read, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. It's really interesting to me that whenever, I just had a moment there. I was out of town, and I had to up my clock on here. And I thought it was almost 10 o'clock. I just had a, I just freaked out. So if you just saw me right there on the video, just kind of have a moment. So anyway, we, I got another hour to preach. Is that okay? I'm just kidding. I won't take that long. But things you touch, it's interesting in the scriptures that it says don't lay hands suddenly on people and share in their sins. Now that's interesting because you're not the one sinning. There's a sense there that if you're not led by the Holy Spirit, you can just indiscriminately go around laying hands on people and be defiled by their sin. Not that you're in sin and not that you need to ask forgiveness for a sin. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you're defiled by them. Also, the same thing would be true with the wrong person laying hands on you. You know, be careful. That's why I really have always been pretty cautious about that here in River of Life. Also, some churches allow things in their midst that definitely bring a sense of defilement. I talked about some of that last week, so I'm not going to go back into that. But there's churches that, that won't preach against certain things, and because they won't preach against it, there's people in their congregation that are having sex outside of marriage. And there's a sense of defiling the whole congregation. You know, it's interesting that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, you better purge the yeast out. You better get that immoral man out because he says a little bit of yeast will work through the whole batch of dough. It will affect all of you. There's a sense of defilement when churches won't. There's a washing of the water of the word of God. And that whole mindset about don't offend anybody, are you giving me a, give me a break? Are you kidding me? Listen, the gospel is going to offend some people deliberately. It's either going to be a stumbling block to their damnation or it's going to be something that brings life to them and salvation. But either way, it's either going to offend them or it's going to break that stubborn pride and bring them to repentance. But it is very in your face. It's very confrontational. The gospel brings us to a place, I mean, just in your face saying you are a sinner. You are lost. You are on your way to hell, and you deserve it. But yet God in his mercy sent somebody to die for you. You see, that's in your face. That's calling you a sinner. That's calling you to repentance. It is confrontational. And so we're not, you can't back away from that and water it down. That's how you get a bunch of tares among the wheat. And that's how pastors end up being a goat herder instead of a shepherd. And of course, victims, people that have been raped or molested, there's a 
very much a sense of defilement. And they didn't do anything wrong. They were victimized, yet they're defiled by it big time. And they need to be cleansed spiritually. So a few other things I want to give you just to think about. Is it okay we talk about some things maybe you're not going to hear everywhere out there? You know, I remember back when Steve Hill, I was, uh, he prayed with me and he's a good friend, sent me out to represent him in the East. And, but I remember he spoke a blessing over me one time. I'll never forget this because of all the things he could have said, where Steve said this, I don't remember everything he said, but one of the things was, and I bless you that people that hear you will say, I have never heard that before. Isn't that interesting that I have got that a lot from people? Steve Hill spoke that over my life and blessed me to preach things that people would say, I've never heard that before. I wonder if that would even be happening if he hadn't have spoken that over me. But he blessed me with that. And I get that a lot. So let me just share this. What is the atmosphere in your home? What is it like when you go home? Is it a place that is really peaceful and you sense the presence of God? And it's easy to sleep and there, it's not easy to fight and it's easy to pray there. It's peaceful. There's a glory there. Or when you go home, is there something kind of tense in the atmosphere? It seems to be heavy, maybe difficult to sleep. And it's easy to have strife break out. Just the littlest thing and it just, and it's difficult to pray and grow spiritually. You feel like you really have to try hard to have a prayer life there. What's the atmosphere like? Because see, if a home or a property is defiled, then if it's defiled, it will automatically start creating an atmosphere either good or bad. You know, if it's defiled, it's obviously going to be oppressed. But if it's a good atmosphere, it's a place that's prayed over, it's holy ground, and the glory's there. So what is the atmosphere like? Now, that's important, isn't it? Because when you go home, you don't want your atmosphere to be oppressed. You want to be able to sleep. You want to be able to easily pray. And God to speak to you. You want to be able to get along with people you live with. So I want you to think about a few things tonight. Number one, entryways. You know, 100 years ago, all you had was a front and a back door. But now there's a lot of different entryways into homes. Let me give you an example. How many of you guys have either satellite or like a DVR? Well, that's an entryway. What about the Internet? How many have the Internet? I do too. Entryway number two. So in other words, there's technology has created entryways. And of course, things you bring in your home can be an entryway. So, you know, you can take anything. You take this towel. And just like you read in Acts chapter 19, now this is just a towel. There's nothing to it. But if we all anointed it and prayed over it and really believed God and sent the anointing can get in this towel and it can become a point of contact for somebody to be healed. But there can be things that, that are evil that have been kind of anointed for evil purposes and that has like an evil energy in it and a power about it. And when you bring that into your home, 
it acts like a lightning rod, if you will, that draws evil spirits to it like a magnet, like a moth to a flame. You need to think about that. Be careful because there's things that have an evil anointing and you bring them in and it draws things to it. So what I would recommend and what we do and I've done is I apply the blood over any entryways, anything to do with the DVR, the TV or whatever, the internet. Go through any type. I've walked my property. And people say, people have asked me a lot through the years, Pastor, how do I pray effectively over my home? Well, if you go to our internet page, if you go to our website, fnirevival.com, and you scroll down, there is a place that says downloads. Click on that. And then as you scroll down, you'll see cleansing homes and land. I've used that for years, and I've given that to people. And I've had some amazing testimonies. Let's give you one real quick. A young man, his wife came here and bought a home up the road from here, really. And he came to me and said, Pastor, we moved in. It's an old home, so it's had a lot of history. And most of the time, that's not good because most history isn't good, unfortunately. And so he said, you know, I try to sleep there, and I'm having a hard time sleeping. It just that something isn't right. And I said, well, man, have you prayed over it? Well, no, I haven't done that yet. I said, well, maybe I ought to pray over it. And so I gave him the cleansing homes and lands paper, gave it to him, said this. It walks you through it. Just do what it says. Okay. So him and his wife go home, and they do everything there. I mean, they pray. They went through every room. They apply the blood. They anointed everything. They blessed it. And it walks you through where you end up in the backyard taking communion together. And he said this. He said, he came back to me later and said, Pastor, I'm going to tell you it was amazing. He said, when we stood in the backyard and we took communion together, and we dedicated that property to the Lord. And I took some of that juice, and I poured it out on the land. And I said, this land is under the blood of Jesus. He said, as soon as that hit that soil, he said, I felt the power of God in an awesome way hit me. And he said, it was like anything dark just left. And God came down in that place. Isn't that awesome? So a lot of times, people just simply don't pray over their property. So I encourage you to really pray it. Pray over it, rather, and Brother Holt was the one told me to go to the four corners of the property and do something. He, God led him one time to, they were going through some horrible warfare for a, a particular reason, but to kind of stake off the property, walk it, and claim it that this belongs to God and it's off limits to hell's forces. And he said once he did that, things changed. So you can mark your property, dedicate it to God, walk through that. I'm telling you, it will drive the enemy out and it will bring the he heaven into your property. I promise you. Also, the last couple things, and we're going to pray, the company you keep. If you have the wrong people in your home, it can defile your home. Sometimes you get around some people and all they want to do is sit around gossiping about others slandering others they want to tell you all other people's garbage they they want to run them down and next thing you know you get around those people and you feel like when you leave their presence you need a bath and they can bring that filth right into your home they come in there and next thing you know they're going to slander all these other people and they start talking about all this garbage and it brings that defilement into your home and and you they leave out and you tell your wife, say, man, I just feel kind of dirty after hanging out with them. And let me give you some advice. Don't have them back. Keep the wrong people out of your home because they can bring something with them that defiles ungodly conversations. 
Also strife, fighting, word curses, where people get into fights and they speak all this negative stuff over each other. That can defile and oppress a home. Ungodly substances, things that bring addiction, those type of things can defile a home. Any type of sexual immorality of any kind, and I, I'm including anything here, people that watch pornography, listen, if you, if you want to have a defiled home and even have demons going through your home, pornography is a very good way to see that happen. The other way would be the occult. Bring the occult. If you want a defiled property and you want demons in your property, the two quickest ways to get them there is to practice the occult and have sexual immorality on that property. The third way is bloodshed. And I'm going to get to that because obviously there's people that move into properties where there's been murders and things like that. But any type of idolatry of the occult, finally, the last thing I would say is when you move into a place, really pray over it, but you need to look into the history of where you're at. You know, I just stayed this last week in a hotel. The very first thing I do after I throw everything in there is I go through it and I pray over the place, anoint it with oil, command everything out that's not of God, ask the Lord to cleanse it because only the Lord knows what all has been in that room before I got there. I don't want to know. I, I do, don't tell me that I just want to pray over it there's no telling but when you move into a home though you need to know what's been there because the history that's there you're living there you're not just going into a hotel room for one night and leaving when you move into a place you're there to stay for a while you need to know has there been murder that's been there has there been suicides has there been different types of sexual immorality like for example has there been somebody that maybe practiced incest or molested children there what has been there because those type of things can defile if you if you could put on some type of spiritual glasses where you could see in the spirit realm and you walk into some of those places it would look like the, at like there's feces on the wall and there's all kinds of disgusting filth just all over that place because of stuff that's there before you. But how many knows that the blood of Jesus can sweep all that clean Amen. and make it pure and his presence will come, it'll be holy. So I'll tell you a quick story about this. I preached along these lines and I was telling people, you know, if you stay somewhere overnight or whatever, that's one thing. Like I was joking around and said, I don't want to know everything that's happened there. I just want to pray over it. But if you live there, it's different. And I remember preaching on these lines, and a lady came up to me. She was college age, I would say 23. And she said, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, and she pulled me off to the side. I was preaching at another guy's church. And she was like, well, I need, after you preached the way you did, uh, I want to tell you something I've been dealing with. And, she, you know, a lot of times people don't want to talk about some of the strange. Has anybody ever had, you don't got to raise your hand, but you have had in your lifetime, since you were a child all the way back, okay, you've had something strange spiritually at some point in your life and you really don't like to talk about because people might think you're a little weird, but you had something strange happen to you. See, people don't talk about it, but a lot of people have had strange things happen. And they'll come to preachers. You, uh, you'd be surprised how many people have come to me and told me stories. And they're like, I would never tell anybody because I don't want to think I'm weird, but I had this, that, and the other happen. And let me just tell you, uh, you're not alone. A lot of people have had strange things happen. 
Well, this lady felt like that. She was like, I didn't want to ever tell anybody. I felt kind of ashamed and weird about the whole thing. But she said, I moved in this apartment. And she said, ever since I've been in there, she said, I have had these horrible dreams. And she said, I have never in my life had any type of homosexual tendencies. I've never had a same-sex attraction. But she said, since I've been in this apartment, she said, I've been having lesbian dreams. And she said, I don't know, I didn't know why until I found out that the people that lived in the apartment before me were lesbians. And she said, after you preached tonight and you were talking about this stuff, she said, I think that they defiled that place and there's a spirit in that place that's affecting me. And she said, can you pray with me? How do I get rid of it? And that, that's why my wife and I compiled the paper that we put on the internet for anybody to get because it walks you through what to do. You, and if you're a true Christian and you have purchased that or you are renting that, you have authority to drive every bit of hell out of there and to clean that place and bring the presence of God in where it's going to be holy ground. So I prayed with her and I told her what to do and I'm sure she did. But you need to find out, has there been a history on your property that you're living think about this indian burial grounds was there witchcraft there was there is it a place where there's been bloodshed through wars or or violence of any kind has there been occult practices there has somebody before you held a seance there you know what i'm saying has there been ungodly sexual activity including has there been people that were there that got divorced and and maybe adultery happened there because there can be a spirit there was a guy i know recently and he's a friend of mine on facebook and i know him and i think that actually uh Stephen might know him through facebook as well but he was saying that there was a home next to his that has had one married couple move in get divorced then the next one move in and get divorced and it's happened multiple times like three or four times he says there's a spirit in that home that's that's causing that he says somebody needs to cleanse that home you see so spiritually you need to take inventory of your home you need to take inventory of things you buy if you buy used things if you buy used vehicles if you buy used uh, clothing whatever you buy just simply pray over it i'm not saying that there's always going to be something defiled or bad it may not be but how many knows it doesn't hurt to pray over everything does it because there could be something you don't know if you buy used things you don't know where it was and what was associated with it before you got it so pray over it okay but anyway hopefully this has helped you guys tonight but these are things that can defile you or defile your home and you're not even living in any type of unrepentant sin or anything here you are trying to live for the lord but yet you could still be defiled by it you see and so people need to know they need to have a preacher get up and tell them things that now they're aware of it they're like you know he's right these things do affect and i think a lot of people i'm gonna talk about this the next time i preach I'm going to talk about being desensitized. Did you know that, number one, I talked about deep consecration. Now I'm talking about being defiled. But did you know also a great danger is being desensitized where you don't even sense something's wrong anymore? 
you, you've been numbed to it. That's dangerous. I'm going to have a whole sermon about that next week or next time I preach. I'm about 2 Timothy chapter 3 and some things the Bible predicted that are happening in our day. So how many want prayer tonight? I came back from this sabbatical. The Lord touched me in a very profound way, spoke to me some things I shared with my wife, mainly some things for us. But it was an amazing time. God mightily touched me, and I believe God's mightily going to touch you. And also, we're going to pray over things. I know people brought some stuff with them. We're going to pray over all of that. We're going to agree together. But what we can do now is if, if you could just go to a screen or something, but we're gonna, we need to move some chairs and just put on some worship. And we're going to pray for those that want prayer tonight.